Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. One of the hardest parts of the news business is striking a balance between covering stories that seem important now and covering stories that you know will truly matter in the future. And it's hard because the most consequential things happening in the moment are often boring or just difficult to explain. When I think about stories that fit this description, the first one that comes to mind is artificial intelligence. The revolution in AI is unfolding so quickly that it's hard to keep up, even if you're trying. ChatGPT4, for instance, was released in March of this year, and it stunned almost everyone who used it. I'm still not sure I understand what it's really doing, but it is quite extraordinary. If this latest large language model is a sign of what's coming, it is easy to imagine all the ways it might change the world. And then there are all the ways it might change the world that we can't imagine. So what do we need to know about AI right now? What are the questions we should be asking? And how should we be preparing for whatever's coming? I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. Today's guest is Stuart Russell. He's a professor of computer science at UC Berkeley and one of our foremost authorities on artificial intelligence. Russell spends a lot of time thinking about what people call the control problem. And it's basically exactly what it sounds like. It's about figuring out how to build AI systems that align with our values and interests. In other words, building AI that won't harm humanity. And that is, as you might suspect, much easier said than done. So I invited Stuart onto the show to talk about the challenges. This is a conversation about the state of AI, the potential risks and benefits of it, and whether it's an illusion to think that we can ever control it. We began by discussing Stuart's work and what's weighing on his mind right now. Stuart Russell, welcome to the gray area. It's nice to be with you, Sean. I would love to start 
by way of introduction for the audience by asking you to just explain briefly, if you can, the sort of work you do on artificial intelligence and where your concerns and interests lie. So I've been doing AI for about 45 years. And for most of that time, I've been working on how do we make computers more intelligent? And I've worked in almost all areas of AI, robotics, vision, language, as well as the core areas of reasoning and decision-making and learning. And in the last 10 years or so, I've been actively considering the following question. Assuming that AI systems eventually become more intelligent than humans, how do we retain power over systems that are more powerful than ourselves forever? You know, this is... This is a topic, it's a big topic, one I've wanted to dive into on the show for a while now, but it's always been a little intimidating because it's so far outside my own intellectual background, which is more in philosophy and politics. I'm aware of the big picture developments in AI. I know how potentially world-altering this technology is and might be, but again, I don't have a lot of expertise here, so I want to treat this as an opportunity to learn what's most important and get a sense of the questions, the problems, the threats we should all be thinking about now. When you think about the state of AI at this moment, what feels most urgent to you? What excites you? What scares you? So I think it's important to understand that almost nobody is saying that the state of AI right now is such that we have to worry about AI systems taking over the world, if you want to put it that way. They still exhibit many limitations, and they're at least the latest generation, the large language models like ChatGPT, don't exhibit the kinds of decision-making capabilities and planning capabilities that you would need to take over the world. Uh, you can try playing chess with them, for example. They're pretty hopeless. They pretend well for a few moves, and then they'll play a move that's completely illegal because they haven't actually learned the rules properly. So there's a lot of progress that we still need to make before we reach systems that are fully comparable or better than a human mind. So the things people are concerned about right now with the technology we already have, disinformation would probably be, number one, the fact that these systems can be directed to generate highly targeted personalized propaganda to convince an individual based on everything the system can find out about that person of anything you want to convince them of. It could do that not just in a single email or blog post or whatever, but could do that over several months. So people are very worried about that being weaponized by nation states, by criminals, by pol you know, unscrupulous politicians who would produce deep fakes of their opponents doing naughty things, all kinds of issues like that. And these are very real, and we're starting to see them already happening. And the, a, a bunch of other serious concerns, one that has surfaced recently is defamation. Systems making up crimes, not being directed to do so, but just because they hallucinate. They say things that have no basis in truth, but making up defamatory statements about real individuals. 
Yeah. Uh, there are a couple of lawsuits happening already. You mentioned Chat GPT 4. It was released earlier this year. It was all the rage. It seemed for a while there, it was the only thing anyone was talking about. And the, the capabilities of it seem to shock a lot of people who track these sorts of things. What did you make of it? Were you stunned by it? Did it feel like a genuine breakthrough to you? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I sort of play a little game with myself. I go to a dinner party. It's how long before the chat GPT word is mentioned, <laughs> right? Like, we didn't make it five minutes here. Um, both chat GPT in November and, and then chat GPT plus or GPT-4, which came out in March of this year. I mean, they are surprising in their capabilities. And, you know, I, I hear some people say, oh, yeah, yeah, we predicted this. But I don't think that's really true. Even the people who built them didn't predict how well they would do. But you have to separate out two things, right? There's the ability to generate fluent, coherent English text, or in fact, in many languages. And it's very hard for us to see fluent, coherent text without perceiving intelligence in it. And there's a little mental exercise I think is helpful. Take a piece of paper from a book. Look at that piece of paper. It's got all this fluent, coherent, intelligent text on it. But the piece of paper isn't intelligent. It never occurs to us that the piece of paper is intelligent. It's just conveying the intelligence of the human being who wrote that text. So the large language models like ChatGPT are somewhere between a piece of paper and uh, you know, a real human intellect. That's a big gap. <laughs> right? Literally, we don't know where they are along that spectrum, right? How much of what they're doing is simply reflecting the fact that they've been trained on vast quantities of fluent, coherent text. And just to give you an example, right? If you build a much, much simpler language model where you take the preceding three words and you predict the next word, which you can almost do with a, a giant lookup table, right? You can just build a table of all three-word sequences that occur in text. And what's the next word that happens after that three-word sequence? That does a pretty good job of generating fluent, coherent, grammatical text. It does seem to have a short-term memory problem in that it'll forget halfway through the sentence what it was talking about and start talking about something different. But that points to this fact that fluency, grammaticality, in generating natural language has to be factored out because you can do that with no intelligence whatsoever with these incredibly simple models. And ChatGPT is just like that three-word predictor, except it's a 3,000-word predictor. It takes the previous 3,000 words and predicts the next word. And in order to do that, it probably has learned some stuff about the world but we don't know what it's learned and we don't know how it works. But it is, as you say, pretty surprising what it can do. Yeah, I mean, even when you use a, a word like learn, it just it implies a kind of agency. You know, I mean, humans can't help but anthropomorphize, you know, that we, we can't help but see ourselves and our tools. But something like GPT-4 does an incredible job of pantomiming thinking, but it is a pantomime, right? Or do you think this machine is really thinking in some important sense? So let's be clear. We've built systems that are capable of doing real logical or probabilistic reasoning for decades and decades. 
And what you're really asking is, is ChatGPT capable of doing things that we have built software systems to do for decades and decades? And the answer is, we don't know. The word thinking, the word learning, the word wanting, you know, we in AI have learned to use these words with invisible quote marks. We sort of forget that those invisible quote marks are there, but they are there. So we never mean these things in the same way that a human being understands how their own mind works, because we are conscious of wanting things and planning things and and so on. And no one is suggesting that the machine has conscious wants or anything like that, right? So when we say want, it just means that there's some data structure inside which functions as an objective with an algorithm that is designed to make sure that that objective becomes true. And so it's reasonable to say that, for example, the chess program wants to checkmate their opponent because that's the goal that it's working towards. So with these large language models, I think there's some evidence that they're doing some kind of reasoning, and they seem to be particularly good at what we might think of as analogical reasoning. So taking some set of facts about one situation and mapping it to another and figuring out what the answer should be in a new situation. But all this is speculation because literally nobody, not the designers, not the experts who spent months and months working with the system to understand its capabilities, nobody understands what's going on inside. Well, that's comforting. Are you comfortable referring to something like chat GPT-4 as intelligent, with the caveat that I'm not even sure we have a great definition of what intelligence is, apart from something vague like the ability to solve problems or or something like that. But is intelligence the right word for you, strictly speaking? For normal conversation, it's a reasonable thing that it shows elements of intelligence. In fact, the paper that Microsoft produced, a group of experts there spent several months with GPT-4 before it was released trying to understand what it could do. And the paper that they produced is called Sparks of Artificial General Intelligence. And, you know, that's a pretty bold claim because artificial general intelligence means the kind of AI that exceeds human capabilities in every dimension, right? The kind of AI that does take over the world. So according to them, we're creating the kind of AI that does take over the world and we're releasing it to hundreds of millions of people. And we're giving it credit cards, bank accounts, social media accounts, you know, we're doing everything we can to make sure that it can take over the world. So that that should give people something to think about. Let me give you an example that one of my colleagues sent me. So I think this was ChatGPT, so chat, that's GPT 3.5. You ask it, which is bigger, an elephant or a cat? And it says, an elephant is bigger than a cat. And you say, which is not bigger than the other, an elephant or a cat? And it says, neither an elephant nor a cat is bigger than the other. So when you look at that second answer, you realize, well, it can't be answering the question with respect to some internal model where there are big elephants and little cats, but which that means that it wasn't answering the first question with respect to an internal model where there are big elephants and little cats. So it wasn't really answering either question in the sense that we think about answering questions where we query an internal model of the world, right? If I say, where's your car? You query your internal model of the world. You say, oh yeah, it's in the parking garage across the road. 
that's what we mean by answering a question. And so it's pretty clear that in a real sense, these systems are not answering questions because they don't seem to build a coherent internal model of the world. Yeah. At what point does something stop being a simulacrum of intelligence and become the real thing? To say nothing of something like consciousness, and but maybe that's the answer when it actually has a model of the world out there, a conceptual understanding of the world out there, and not just a machine that's processing and assembling language. I think that's probably right. You know, whether it's philosophers who have worked on this for thousands of years, or psychologists, or AI people, that's our only answer for how how does intelligence work? That we learn an internal model of the world that allows us to reason, to make plans about the future, and function effectively in the real world. And, you know, there are animals that probably don't do that. An interesting video that I saw when I was a kid about dung beetles, which are amazing animals. Anyway, they dig a nest, they put their eggs in the nest, they go collect a ball of dung, and they put the ball of dung into the nest so that when the eggs hatch, they can eat the dung and grow into beetles. And so what the scientists did, which I thought was very mean, so the beetle is carrying this ball of dung, which is about as big as it is, right? It's about the same size as the dung beetle's body. So it's carrying this huge ball of dung over its head, and they just they get some tweezers and they take the ball of dung away. And the beetle just continues as if it was still carrying the ball of dung and goes to the nest and puts this non-existent ball of dung into the nest and then tamps it down. So once you see that, you realize it wasn't doing what we thought it was doing. So it wasn't intelligent in the same way that we would think, you know, if we saw a human being doing that, we would think they were intelligent. So you can generate behavior in lots of different ways. And real intelligence is much more robust than more simplified versions that simply learn routines and, and execute routines in straightforward ways. Well, thanks to that, every time someone mentions Sisyphus carrying a boulder, I'm going to think of a, a beetle carrying a giant ball of shit. So thanks for that one. Um, but even if AI is or becomes intelligent in some universally agreed upon way, it will still remain a totally alien form of intelligence, right? And we'll get more into why I think that's really scary in just a second, but it seems like an important point to make early on. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, an example of how weird the large language models are is these jailbreaks that people have discovered. What happens when you build a large language model is, first of all, you train it on tons and tons and tons of text. So you're just training it to predict the next word, given the previous 3,000 or 20,000 words or whatever the size of the context window is. And when you do that, you get a system that is in many ways quite unpleasant because a lot of the training data is Reddit conversations that you wouldn't want your mother to read. So then they have a phase called RLHF, which stands for Reinforcement Learning from Human Feedback. And what you do there is you pay thousands of people to look at possible outputs that the system might produce and rank them and say, yeah, this is good, that's bad, this is good, that's bad. And that works to some extent. It really does reduce the frequency of the system outputting racist stereotypes or answering questions about biological weapons that it's not supposed to answer. 
or telling you how to commit suicide. And then people showed that if you just prefix your question with a special sequence of characters, or in our case, with our research group, we showed that you could just put in an image, just a, you know, an image that looks like static. You can get it to answer any question you want. So all that training to get it to behave itself can just be bypassed completely by putting in this random string of characters or this random image. And that shows you that it's just, it's weird beyond belief. We just don't know what's happening or how to make it behave in ways we want. Coming up after a quick break, Stuart tells me why he's asked for a pause in the development of AI. Support for the gray area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger. Or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, when you hear Secret Sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So you and many other serious people in this field have called for a pause in the development of AI. Why? And do you think there's any chance of that happening? So the pause letter, as it's called, so it was an open letter from the Future of Life Institute, which is a group at MIT, and it asked that there be a pause in the training and deployment of large language models that are more capable than GPT-4, which is the system that we just talked about, the sort of GPT plus engine. And there hasn't been a new system released more powerful than GPT-4. So when you ask, is there any chance of there being such a pause, there has been such a pause, and we're almost at six months. But that's not to say that people have stopped 
working on the problem, right? And the reason for the latter was that we were concerned that the rate of progress in AI capabilities was outstripping our understanding of what was going on and our ability to control these systems. And what we wanted was that companies should put significant effort into figuring out how do we predict and control these systems? How do we prevent certain kinds of extremely unsafe behaviors? For example, breaking into other computer systems, replicating themselves so that we would be unable to control them or switch them off. Those kinds of behaviors would be a sign that we could be in serious trouble if if and when these systems become more capable. And, you know, I think there have been some very positive developments. So since that open letter, governments have been running around like headless chickens saying, what do we do? What do we do? Help us, help us figure out what regulations we need. Who do we talk to? What's going on? What is this AI stuff anyway? So they really have woken up. And I think that's a good sign. So I'm actually very positively surprised by the effect of that open letter. Well, part of what you're talking about here is this problem loosely referred to as the alignment problem, which is really about this question of whether AI will reach a point where it will develop its own goals separate and apart from the goals we might program into it, and whether or not those goals will be <laughs> suicidal to, uh, to its designer. When it comes to this, I really don't know what to think. You know, there's as I'm sure you're aware, the New York Times journalist Kevin Roos had had a conversation with the chatbot earlier this year, which was published in the paper. And and it was such a strange, mind-bending example of the directions this could go. I mean, maybe you could sum up that interaction for people who didn't see it and tell me what you made of it. I mean, I, at one point, I recall him like literally just asking for help about how to buy a rake. And the chatbot was trying to convince him feverishly to leave his wife. <laughs> I mean, it's, I, I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> He's doing anything he can to change the subject. I mean, he even starts like, what's your favorite programming language? <laughs> and it's, what is that? So to begin with this notion of the alignment problem. So actually, the alignment problem is simpler than the one you described. So you said the alignment problem is about systems developing their own goals, which are different from the ones we program into them. Actually, the original alignment problem is about systems pursuing the goals that we program into them. Mm, yeah. But the problem is we don't know how to program the right goals, and we call this the King Midas problem. So King Midas programmed the goal into the gods that everything he touched should turn to gold, and the gods gave him exactly this. So they carried out his objective, and then his food and his drink and his family all turned to gold, and he dies misery and starvation. So, so this idea that, you know, and there are many, many legends and lots of cultures have stories very similar to this, where you get what you ask for and you regret it because you didn't ask for the right thing. So what people have observed is that when you've got a sufficiently capable AI system and you give it even a very innocuous sounding goal, like, could you fetch me a cup of coffee? When a machine is sufficiently intelligent and it has a goal like fetch a cup of coffee, it doesn't take a genius to realize that if someone switches you off, you're not going to succeed in fetching the coffee. So you've given the system now as a logical sub-goal of this original goal, you've now got the goal of preventing myself from being switched off. 
and possibly taking other preemptive steps to avoid interference by human beings in the achievement of this goal. You can have fun imagining all the ways this could go wrong. Yeah, and, and there are many science fiction stories yeah. that do exactly that. So sometimes it's, in the literature, you'll see the phrase instrumental goals. So these are goals like self-preservation, like acquiring more power over the environment, acquiring money, acquiring more computing resources so you can do a better job of solving the goal that you've been given. So these instrumental goals are just derived automatically from the original goal. And with a human being, if I say fetch a cup of coffee, it doesn't mean fetch a cup of coffee is now the only goal that you should care about and your entire life's mission is to fetch that coffee. That's not what we mean when we say it to a human being, but that's how we have been building our AI systems for decades and decades, that the objective that we put in is the objective of the system and nothing else. And so that's fundamentally a mistake. We can't build systems that way because we cannot specify completely and correctly all the things that human beings care about so that the system's behavior is actually what we would really want to have happen. So my book is about a different way of building AI systems so that they understand some things about what humans want but they know there's a bunch of other stuff that they don't understand and they're uncertain about. And that actually leads to systems that behave much more cautiously and usefully. So then the other thing you mentioned, right, that they would develop their own goals, obviously that would be even worse, right? So it's bad enough that we just, we give them misspecified goals. And if they're able to develop their own goals, then there's no reason to think that those would be aligned with uh no, we're, we're closer to skynet uh in that scenario right yeah i mean so this is more like what you see in the typical hollywood movie is that everything is fine until the system kind of wakes up the system goes online on august 4th 1997 human decisions are removed from strategic defense skynet begins to learn at a geometric rate it becomes self-aware at 2 14 a.m eastern time august 29th in a panic, they try to pull the plug. Skynet fights back. Spooky image consciousness and usually hates human beings and wants to destroy them or whatever. And that's completely unnecessary, right? There's consciousness and the ability to autonomously develop its own goals and not part of the story as to why they present an existential risk. But large language models are actually worse than the sort of classical AI systems where we do specify the goal. Because with large language models, we're not specifying the goal. What we're training them to do is imitate human linguistic behavior. So what's happening with the large language models and what's happening, I think, in the Kevin Roos conversation, there were a bunch of conversations in the training set where one person is trying to convince the other to be in love with them, to marry them, whatever. And something in the conversation activated that persona because ChatGPT is actually trained to imitate many millions of different people. And several thousand of those people are in the I'm trying to convince you to marry me mode. So something activates that mode and then ChatGPT is off to the races. And as you say, it goes on for 20 pages trying to convince Kevin to leave his wife and that it really should be in love with, with GPT-4. Well, you know, I mean, this is, I, I often hear P, 
people say, look, you know, we're we're only talking about narrow AI at the moment, and we're not talking about AGI or strong AI. And strong AI is the thing we really need to worry about, and we're we're nowhere close to that. And that just seems wrong to me. I mean, partially it seems to misunderstand maybe how progress in AI actually works, but even for me, again, it's not like we need some AGI super intelligence to wreck our world. I mean, when I start imagining all the havoc AI could cause merely through, as you were saying earlier, the creation and distribution of misinformation, it makes my head explode. I mean, deep fake tech is already here, but it doesn't quite feel pervasive enough yet to be a major concern. But what happens when deep fake is merging with future large language models? I mean, what kind of carnage could come out of that. I mean, the lines between fact and fiction are already suicidally blurred in our society. But but the kind of post-truth world I can imagine in that future is infinitely worse than our situation today. And I don't think we're ready for it, Stuart. I don't think we can be ready for that. Do you? No, I, I think if it's not regulated, we are in for a, a huge amount of pain. And as you say, in terms of still images, we are already at the point where they are indistinguishable from reality. And they are coupled with the large language models. In other words, you can ask the language model to give you an image of anything you want, and it, it'll do it. So Dolly and these other image generators are coupled to language models. And you know, video is already, you can, you can already say, give me a 20-second video showing such and such and such and such, and it will do it. It's not great right now, but three years ago, face generation wasn't great. There would often be like weird things with the ears, or there would be like the same pair of of earrings occurring over and over again, or you know, so just glitches. But those have been ironed out, and now it's pretty much perfect. And that's going to be the case for video very soon, if not already in in the lab. Uh, that you can say, okay, I need a video of Donald Trump receiving a, a suitcase full of cash from some mafiosi. And it'll produce it for you. And it'll be very, very difficult for anyone to prove that that's not real. So we really need regulation. Just like we have regulation around counterfeit currency, we can now produce counterfeit currency that's indistinguishable from the real thing to a non-expert you know, shopkeeper, for example. And as a result, we have very, very stringent regulations and enormously long jail sentences for counterfeiting, and a lot of security around the designs. And so this idea that digital technology is completely safe and should be unregulated in all circumstances is just extremely outdated. So the two things people are proposing, one, that all output for AI-generated content should be labeled indelibly. So there are methods called watermarking, which work for images and sound and video, where it's sort of cryptographically encoded into the content, and there's really no way to pull it out. And so you can recognize that that's generated by such and such a model and such and such a date. And then you also want the platforms, the social media platforms, necessarily have to make that absolutely apparent to the user. So they could, for example, give you a filter saying, I don't want to see artificially generated content, period. Or if you do see it, it should have a big red box around it and maybe a sort of a red filter so that 
it just doesn't look like ordinary natural video. And then you also want to have ways of watermarking real video. So when I have a video camera and I'm out there in the real world, it's producing an indelible, cryptographically secure sort of time stamping and geocoding and all the rest. So that that's globally recognized so that we know that this is real video. And those two things together will go a long way, plus the regulations on the media platforms go a long way to making us safe. Is that going to happen? I don't know. Okay, so what could the benefit of AI be in the near and far future? That's coming up after a quick break. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Do you think there's a plausible or even semi-plausible AI utopia in our future? So that's a great question. And I've actually spent a lot of time reading some good and some not very good science fiction, trying to find the utopian version of the future. And I think, obviously, if AI couldn't produce any benefits, we wouldn't be spending any money on it at all, right? There wouldn't be that research field wouldn't exist, right? And I would say in the near term, I think we could see huge benefits in education, not allowing students to cheat on their homework, but allowing AI systems to deliver personalized, high-quality tutoring interaction to pretty much every child on Earth. We can do this in all major languages and many minor languages. So my general view of what should we use AI for, and this interacts with this question of, you know, is AI going to put people out of work? And what are people for if AI can do everything? Is that we should use AI to meet unmet needs, not to meet needs that are already met by humans and replace the humans with cheaper AI. So when you think about unmet needs, you know, the national education and the national health budgets in some of these countries is on the order of $10 a year per person. So to a first approximation, there is no health system there is no education system. I think education is the easiest to deliver because 
unlike health, it doesn't involve physical treatment, right? It's, it's information. And so that's a place where we could have a huge impact. Or maybe AI comes up with the cure for cancer or solves the riddle of fusion energy or something. I, I don't know, right? I mean, I guess the possibilities are infinite, I suppose. I, I sort of separate out things we already know how to do, but we could now do at much less cost at much greater scale using AI. And then things we don't know how to do that maybe AI would be able to help us do. And that's sort of a bit yeah. more sci-fi. Yeah. But it's still realistic for drug discovery, right? We it's not just AI, it's also computational simulation of molecules and AI is actually helping with that as well. And we are seeing very rapid progress in capabilities in these areas. And I, and I think we're going to produce major breakthroughs during this decade in healthcare. The other issue is what about the sort of what some people call the fully automated luxury capitalism or some fully automated luxury communism where if it's general purpose AI, it can literally do everything that human beings can do. So it can run our entire civilization for us and deliver wealth basically for the asking so that everyone can have a good standard of living. There's obviously some issues there to do with raw materials and sustainability and availability of land. Not everybody can have a nice house with a big garden because there literally isn't enough space on the earth for everyone to have a big garden. So. There, I think, with general purpose, that's a real possibility that everyone on Earth could have a really nice standard of living. We could end poverty. We could end then one of the major causes of conflict between human beings, which is lack of access to resources. So that could be great. And then you're left with a question of then what are human beings going to do? Do you end up with the Wall-E world where people are infantilized because the AI systems are running civilization and human beings no longer have to learn how to do it. They don't have to work. They don't even need to go to school because everything is provided. Well, unfortunately, the, the way this tends to go is we develop the technologies first and as fast as we can. And then we just hope to God we can adapt on the other side of that innovation. And I think eventually that game is going to go badly. And I don't know when that's going to happen. I don't know if it'll be AI related, but it does worry me. Even with the AI we have now, I mean, just the thought of everybody in the, on the planet having their own private AI advisor, <laughs> which would be like having the smartest person who ever lived giving you advice every day about what to do. That seems kind of awesome, but I, I don't know what that would mean exactly if everyone has it. And then I guess it sort of speaks to the double-edged nature of these sorts of things. Where Then I see a story the other day about a man in Belgium who killed himself with the assistance of his personal chatbot. I mean, it just speaks to how unwieldy and unpredictable these, these machines are. I remember correctly, he made a deal with it because he <laughs> was really worried about climate change. And he made a deal where he's saying, okay, if I kill myself, can you promise that you'll fix climate change? <laughs> and then the system basically says, yeah, sure, let's do it. I mean, if that's really the case, that's pretty horrifying. There's a phrase going around called socio-technical embedding, right? Which is basically stop thinking about the technology per se, thinking about what happens when the technology is put into a society with real human beings and try and figure out the consequences. And that's a lovely ambition, but it also implies we can anticipate <laughs> 
what all the consequences. And we cannot do that. Yeah, really tough to do. I mean, I would say right now, the best way to do it is to read lots of science fiction because those guys are paid yeah. to imagine weird consequences from technology. I hear constantly this talk about how we just have to program the right values into these machines so that their goals are, are beneficial to humanity or, or whatever, or they're optimized for the right thing. And that always makes me recoil a little bit. You know, when it comes to something like chess playing computers or something like that, it's a non-problem because chess is a domain of perfect objectivity where winning is clearly defined. But human life isn't like that. And I guess I worry because if you're telling me in order to develop safe AI, we need to have answers for these first principle questions about what's good or worth wanting, then I think we're kind of screwed because there, there are good reasons we still can't reach a consensus on these questions. You know, there is no utility function for all of the human race. So I don't know the way around that. So I do not want to try to program in the right objective. In other words, I don't want to solve alignment first, put in the correct utility function of the human race, and then off we go, because I'm going to fail, and then we're back to system pursuing the wrong goal and preventing us from interfering because it's pursuing what it thinks is the right goal. And that's exactly the failure mode that we talked about earlier. So when a system knows that it doesn't know the utility function, it actually behaves in ways that the more classical system that's just pursuing a fixed objective never does. For example, it would ask permission. It has an incentive to ask permission to carry out some plan if it's not sure that it's what we want, because it wants to avoid doing things that violate our preferences about the future. So now, the more uncertainty it has about our preferences, the more often it's going to be asking permission to do things, and the more cautious it's going to be about changing the world. And in fact, we can show this as a mathematical theorem. It actually wants to be switched off if we want to switch it off because it wants to avoid doing whatever it is that would cause us to want to switch it off. So you get all of a sudden these qualitatively different behaviors that are what you would hope to get from a system that's going to be safe and beneficial to the human race. And the technology of taking these mathematical principles and putting them into practice with large-scale systems that could replace GPT-4 and so on. We are a long way from being able to do that. But this is what I mean by a mathematical problem whose solution we're guaranteed to be happy with. So some of the points you made, those are exactly right. I think there are still questions about, for example, even if I had a good predictive model for the preferences of all individual human beings about how they would rank different possible futures. There's still a question of, well, how do you aggregate those preferences? This is sometimes called social aggregation. And I think there are genuine philosophical difficulties about that. Just for example, what do you do about the preferences of people who don't yet exist? We don't have good answers to those questions. But if we don't find good answers to those questions, then we're just going to have bad answers to those questions implicitly built into AI systems that we deploy. I once had a slide in the talk I gave that said moral philosophy is going to become a key industry sector. And I think that's right, that we have to be able to figure out 
answers these questions because any system that is making decisions on our behalf is answering those questions. Well, you just delighted thousands of unemployable philosophy grad students who may be listening right now. So well done. I think one of the disturbing revelations for me in recent years actually has been learning how easy it is actually to change the world. You know, I mean, I think about a comparatively simple technology like social media algorithms and how they've helped shape our wants in their image. And in that sense, I think they actually have changed us in a very real way. Now, if social media algorithms are this powerful, how powerful will the AI be of tomorrow? And how might that change us in ways we can anticipate and more importantly, can't? And again, I, I would say, importantly, that I don't think any of the creators of social media or the algorithms that run them intended any of the outcomes that have come to pass. Not really. It was just sort of a logical consequence of the tools maximizing whatever they were designed to maximize, and the engineers just didn't anticipate it. So if, if something like that is capable of this sort of transformative disruption on our world, then my God, it's pretty daunting. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's an example I often use of misalignment, that the social media algorithms, are, they were designed to maximize, let's say, clicks or engagement, eyeball time. And I think originally, people thought, oh, well, you know, the systems will learn to send people stuff they're interested in, and that's great. But that's not the optimal solution to the problem, right? The optimal solution is actually, as you pointed out, to change people so that their consumption preferences are more accurately right. predictable. Right. And, and it just turns out, I think maybe we could have predicted this, but we certainly didn't predict it, that people whose preferences are more extreme are more predictable in their consumption behavior. And so the algorithms learned to convert people into more extreme versions of themselves in order to be able to then get a higher engagement or click rate in the future. And I think you're right, that wasn't the original intention of the platform companies, but they knew this was going on. Yeah. But by that time, it's making too much money. Commercial interests are driving the bus. Yeah. So when you think about GPT-4 and hundreds of millions of people engaging in conversation with it for hours a day, we have no idea what effect that's going to have. Maybe it makes people less concerned about climate change. And then we end up with a catastrophe, and we don't even know why we're in this catastrophe, right? It was really the AI system that caused this, but it wasn't anyone's fault, right? So I think we've been really negligent in considering, both from a science point of view, how to anticipate and predict and control the effects of these systems, and on the regulatory side, let's actually, before we go around implementing and deploying these sort of civilization-changing technologies, figure out how to control them. At what point does AI innovation become the most consequential event in human history? Good question. I think certainly when we have something resembling AGI. So AGI means AI systems that match or exceed human capabilities along all relevant dimensions. But because of the massive advantages that machines have in speed, memory, communication bandwidth, intake bandwidth, there's no doubt that they would very quickly far exceed human capabilities. So that would be 
the biggest event in human history, in my view, because it would, in some sense, basically switch to an entirely different basis for civilization. Our civilization is based on our intelligence, and now that would no longer be true. It might also be the end of civilization if we don't figure out how to control such a system. I'm guessing you don't like to make predictions about when that might happen. Not so much. I mean, I did once make a prediction in a room that was under strict Chatham House rules, and I began my sentence with, off the record, it appeared in a newspaper headline 20 minutes later in a very distorted form. I think the headline was something like, sociopathic robots to take over the world within a generation, says British computer scientist expert, or something, something like that. Nice. So I think I'm actually more conservative than some of my colleagues. For example, Jeff Hinton, who is one of the main developers of deep learning and a very prominent computer scientist, a couple of months ago resigned from his position at Google so that he could talk about his concerns. And in his view, it's basically game over. You know, within five to 20 years, we'll be in a position where we cannot compete with these systems. Then it'll be, as he says, time to tidy up your affairs. And in historical time, that is not even a blink. The whole race to develop AI feels so much to me like a... Promethean quest to conjure up an intelligence that we cannot understand and for that reason cannot control. And what scares me the most is this basic truth that it has always been and will always be easier to break than to build. And that means the margin for error is so perilously thin. And I feel like we're, we're just going to keep inching up to the edge here until we tumble off. But again, I don't mean to be so uh, dark here at the end. But yeah, it's a scary prospect, I guess. And I'm just, I'm worrying aloud. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and the CEOs of the companies that are developing this technology, they have the same concern. And yet somehow they can't stop themselves. Right. And they, there's various rationalizations like, well, I'm a gooder person than they are. And if I don't do it, then the bad guys are going to do it. And those kinds of things. But at the same time, I think there is this enormous sense of, power of significance in what you're doing. And governments are asking, how can we prevent this? What should we do? What I would like to see is right now, there are tens of billions going into creating AGI and not even tens of millions going into making sure that it's going to be safe and beneficial to the human race. And it should be the other way around. Yeah. As it is with nuclear power, for example, almost all research and development around nuclear power is how do we contain it? How do we make sure it doesn't turn into an explosion? And that's what really, at this point, AI should be about. So if I'm a government, how do I encourage that switch? Basically say, look, here are things that we don't want AI systems to do. We don't want them to break into other systems. We don't want them to replicate themselves. We don't want them to you know, give away national secrets. We don't want them to explain to terrorists how to build biological weapons and so on. You can make a list that any sensible person would agree they shouldn't do. And if they do any of those things, they are immediately removed from the market and you are out of business until you fix it. So if you have those rules, just as we do for 
nuclear power stations. You have to show that your design experiences a failure rate of one in a million years or one in 10 million years or whatever. If you can't, you're not in the market. You're not in business. So at the moment, there are no large language models that can satisfy any of those properties. And so if that law was passed, they wouldn't last 24 hours before they were taken off the market. That's a pretty good incentive to actually figure out how these things can be designed so that they're safe, predictable, controllable. And as you said, go back to methods of creating intelligence where we actually understand what's going on, not giant black boxes with a hundred billion or a trillion switches that we tweak randomly until the system behaves itself, right? That's where we are now, and that's not a plausible technology route if we actually want human civilization to continue. Well, let's hope we figure all this out in the next five to 10 years. <laughs> Stuart Russell, this was a pleasure and an education. So thank you so much for coming in today. Thanks, Sean. Alex Overington wrote our theme music. Serena Solen is our fact checker and A.M. Hall is the boss. As always, let us know what you think of the episode. Drop us a line at the gray area at vox.com. And please share it with your friends and family and other random strangers on social media. And remember, new episodes of the gray area now drop on Mondays. The Gray Area is a part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep Vox free by going to vox.com give.